So tonight I want to talk about um, changing paradigms or stepping out of samsara. We wish. So last night James spoke so beautifully about, well, he mentioned a Buddhist saying that he taught suffering, I teach suffering and its end. And how, and with a show of hands, seeing how many people here actually come to practice with the sense of because of suffering, somehow wanting to end suffering, to be happy. And of course, I said that in the metta uh, meditation that I led, that I said, and the Buddha also said, really, it's our natural um, birthright, really, to be happy. The whole point of the meditation, though, is really that our understanding of suffering and happiness starts to change, hopefully, begins to change, that what we think when we come into beginning our practice and what we may think as we go along, and usually we don't even realize what we think, as to what happiness is and the way we go about trying to achieve that and to end suffering, doesn't work. That just as it doesn't work in our daily life, the same motivations, the same understandings that we have in our daily life, of course we bring to meditation, because that's how we see the world. And when the meditation really starts to light up, take fire, start to cause us trouble, when it starts to get, you know, oh, everything's exploding and falling down on me today, that's when it's getting good, because that's when the ways that we unconsciously, our assumptions about who we are and what the world is and what happiness is, are starting to show that they're not working. And of course, we don't like that, so we're suffering. But that's really where the rubber is starting to meet the road. So I'm sure you know the very famous quotation from the Buddha in the Dhammapada, where one translation is, refrain from the unwholesome, do good, purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. This is really essential, especially what I want to talk about tonight is this last one, purify the mind. This is essentially the whole, I don't say work, the whole um, point, the whole thing that meditation practice, that spiritual practice is about. Whether you want to say purifying the mind or understanding what pure mind and heart is, and how we get seduced away from resting in the natural possibility of pure mind and heart. Either way, that's really the place where the whole practice is about what's going on in the mind. And this is radical. Even though we may agree with it intellectually, that doesn't really do us any good. Don't believe me. Look and see for yourself. Again, this very famous from the Dhammapada, the first two verses in the Dhammapada. This is Gil Fransdahl's translation. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. Mind, heart, chitta, translated into English, it's the same word. Guy kind of likes the translation psyche, our whole sense of what's happening in consciousness and awareness in a moment that the whole seed of happiness and suffering is not at all at that the Buddha, the suffering that the Buddha is talking about, that he's teaching what the suffering is and what the ending of it is. As James said last night, we're all going to experience pain. We're all going to get old. If we don't get old, it's because we experience greater pain first. Um, Things are going to (laughs) go, things are going to go wrong. You know, stuff happens. The Buddha wasn't teaching freedom from that. 
But in teaching the freedom from suffering, that the suffering and the freedom from it is all what's going on in the mind, in the awareness. And this is radical, you know? It's really saying that that's where all our practice is, that's where all our interest, our investigation, our, our growth, our freedom lies in this insubstantial, nothing you can hold on to, changing every single moment mind. And all of our focus on what we like and what we don't like and what our practices and what we're getting in our life and how we're living and our personality and you, you name it, doesn't make any difference whatsoever. Whatsoever. It's radical. Freedom and suffering is all in the mind. All the work of the mind. And really, in my experience, all the different meditation techniques in various ways, I'm not going to go into that tonight, but in various ways, they are ways of accessing, recognizing the purity of mind or heart, as well as recognizing how we get seduced away from the purity of mind and heart, how we tend to take refuge in, when, when it says a corrupt mind, and there's no great translation that we feel good about of that word, but corrupt mind basically it means when the kalesa, the corruptions, the defilements, forms of greed, hatred, aversion, fear, second one, or delusion, confusion, not knowing, not recognizing accurately. When some form of any of those mental factors, they rise and pass like everything else, is present in the mind, the heart, unrecognized, unseen, that's what he's referring to as a corrupt mind. Unseen, unrecognized, it leads to how we view the world, our perceptions, our thoughts, our explanations of the world, our, our views, what we believe is true, the assumptions we make without even knowing that they're assumptions, and then the decisions we make, how we act, how we relate to ourselves, to our own experience, to others. So I think why in the Noble Eightfold Path, the path we follow of practice, the first step is wise view, wise understanding. Not, of course, it's the first step, so it's not totally, completely purified understanding, obviously, but a sense of just beginning to tune in to notice how we understand the world, how we understand ourselves, our experience, because this is so key. Not that we have to change it, but we just need to know, to recognize, to get interested, just to begin with, in the assumptions, the attitudes, the views we have about ourselves and the world. And these are what are so challenged, really, by Dharma practice, by spiritual path. I was, um, I sat a retreat with Ajahn Sumedho here, here at Spirit Rock this past summer, and in a group interview, I forget what we were talking, somehow we were talking, he always talks about trusting or having confidence in uh, receptive awareness natural awareness, which I love the way he talks about it, and I use his language a lot. But anyway, in the interview, somehow we just both kind of, there was just like a kind of transmission moment where we were both just feeling it, uh, just falling into that sense of purity of awareness, to say. And he just kind of chuckled and goes, it's really the opposite of everything we've ever been taught, isn't it? And it's true. It is. Now, that doesn't have to be a problem once we recognize what we're believing and what we've been taught, and we can just, don't have to dump it, but we can just have a little space around it. Just maybe having the sense, maybe this isn't the only possible way. Just a little example, just of how our, our assumptions and our views color the way we describe and explain the world. Just a little story. Um, I was just in Burma, and we were with some friends, we were staying at a meditation center with a Sayada Uindika, and we had brought in some money, and so we were doing a lot of kind of very formal offerings of food and rice and this and that in different locations. Maybe I'll talk more about that later. But so it's a very uh, photogenic kind of thing. So every time you're doing offerings, someone's taking photos, and, and also most of the people love to have their photo taken and see it. So I was taking photos, and two of my friends were, three different cameras. 
So then um, one of the friends, we put her camera on a, the other friend's computer, and she was looking at the photos. And several, quite, a, quite some of them, several photos, had in different places these kind of circular bright spots. Like there's one that was all over the lungi I was wearing and in different places. And my friend who had taken the photos has lived the better part of 17 years in Burma. She's a nun there, and so she's very much in the culture. And the Burmese culture, it's a Buddhist culture, very kind of traditional Theravada Buddhist, very much a sense of faith in the traditional Buddhist teachings, which include different world systems. So right away, she thought, wow, those are devas. Not that those are actually devas, but those are the reflection of the devas energy, which that's, you know, that's our reaction. My other friend, who's on her computer, who's also a nun, but she was a scientist, very scientific mind. She just looked at me and rolled her eyes, you know, and then she said, of course, there's some kind of moisture in the camera, or this or that, and all these explanations. And then they brought Sayadaw in, and he was looking at it and laughing. I really don't know what he thinks, but he started teasing us all about the devas and how I was bringing devas with me. And anyway, yesterday, I looked at the pictures in my camera on my computer, and there they were, you know, the little... <laughs> so, who knows, you know? Who knows? But it's just, we don't have to know. But just to see, in each case, it's a very complete worldview explanation of what it is. So, the, just the first um, attitude that it's very helpful to bring to our practice is that willingness to not know. Just the willingness to not know. If we could just keep meeting each moment of experience with, don't know, what should happen, what this means about me, how it could be better, how my practice is going, how it compares to last retreat, how it compares to the instructions, how it could be better, yada, yada, yada. Oh, this is Sameda's language. It's like this. That's all. Oh, burning is like this. Oh, self-judgment is like this. My breath is so tight. I can't stay with the breath for two seconds after all these years of practice. Judgment is like this. Nothing to do or change or fix. No need to construct a story about what it means. Oh, we almost can't stand it. We want the story. We need the story. Where would we be without the story? Who would I be without the story? Even though, how often is the story a suffering one? How often? Still, though, it's my story. And without that story, it's like, Davis, what? Can't be, what? You know, I have to have some certainty. I have to know. Anyway. When we can just begin... Just that's the very first attitude, just that sense of not knowing. The willingness to just rest in this moment as it is, without needing to add anything to it, already is cutting against our lifelong habit, you know, of wanting, of disliking, of it's all about me, me, me. You know that very clearly. See what something Sayadaw said. I can find it. He describes it kind of pithily. He says, you know, we, the automatic habit of our mind, we basically spend every day of our life as sense objects come in and out. And you know sense objects, right? The six sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling or sensing with the body. And the sixth sense door is the minor mental object. So that would be thoughts, emotions, Mental factors like, say, concentration, it's not an emotion exactly, but it's a factor of mind. Wisdom, ignorance, greed, love, mental factors coming and going. We've spent every day of our life, as the sense objects come and go, like this one, don't like that one, like this one, don't like that one, right? It's just automatic. Notice sometime, as you just, when you're just a bit relaxed, but just noticing your mind, you know, not trying to control it, not trying to focus, but just play with it sometimes. When you're walking down to the dining room 
or walking through the dining room as you're lining up for the meal. And you're not trying to make your mind do anything, but just notice as you're with the process how the mind tends to relate in each moment. It may not be so clear as, but I've really noticed it in myself. I'll walk through the dining room, my mind's going, like, don't like, they look nice, they don't. Recoil, go forward, this is pleasant, this isn't. You know, it's not that clear, so we don't notice it. But it's basically forward, back, forward, back, and not worth noticing. Forward, back, forward, back, and nothing. Forward, back, forward, back. And then the next minute, what does it mean about me? What does it mean about me? It's exhausting, for one thing. Exhausting. And then we decide we see it's exhausting, but we haven't stepped out of the paradigm. We see it's exhausting, we decide it's stupid, so we hate it, right? That helps, that really helps a lot. But that's sort of the kind of staying within the same paradigm and trying to meditate from that. We bring this liking, not liking, it doesn't matter. Liking, not liking, I don't care. Liking, not liking, it's all about me. We bring the same sense to the meditation. And then we wonder why it's a struggle. Because really ingrained there, and I know maybe I'm making it a bit sim- simplistic, you know, just to talk about <laughs> But I don't think it's untrue for being simplistic. But not every moment. That's why we can laugh. It's good you can laugh. That means there's a little space <laughs> to see, oh, it isn't always that way. So deeply habituated that the pleasant, as you know this, it's so pleasant, just slightly pleasant. We, the mind experiences something is slightly pleasant, that Vedana, the second foundation of mindfulness. And without awareness, this habit of liking, dislike, that the liking, wanting, leaning forward ever so slightly just naturally kicks in. And it feels so familiar that it feels just natural, doesn't it? So of course I like what's pleasant. Don't tell me not to like what's pleasant. What about, you know, and then it goes off into whichever way your mind wants to go with that. Unpleasant, not even painful, just slightly unpleasant. That subtle recoiling, the subtle not liking, the subtle preference for the pleasant, that's just natural. And as Tejaniya says, you know, we're, we're practicing that 10 million times a day, our whole life. Of course it feels natural. And then so-called neutral, or something that doesn't make much of an impression, we often just don't notice much at all, or go off into a story. Or the third way, so that's greed, hatred, or dosa. I like the Pali word that's usually translated as hatred, the second of the kalesa. Uh, The Pali word is dosa. I like to use that personally much better than hatred, because it's broader and not so charged. So dosa, it means not hatredness, it's hatred, fear, or even just that subtle recoil of not liking. No dosa in the mind. And as I get on to talking about how our practice is really not about changing experience, but just getting interested in watching what's going on in the mind that's observing without judgment. It gets fascinating. So if I'm noticing what's in the mind, I go, oh, self-hatred, oh, hatred. You know, if I say hatred, somebody walked across my path and I'm, oh, hatred. Then, you know, right away, the mind goes, that's disgusting. You hate that person? All I did it. If I go dosa in the mind, oh, dosa in the mind, okay. I can be with that, you know. Just a sense of how language is actually very interesting to explore how often the words that we use can carry a huge charge or a lot of um, associations that we don't quite realize and we can end up in a struggle. We shift the words like, oh, dosa, I can be with that. Hatred, that's a whole story about me. And the third one, delusion, as I said, is kind of spacing out, not noticing, but the actual way that I notice delusion that it's much easier to notice is the confusion, the misperception, that sense of me, me, me. It all refers back to me. It's basically the underlying corruption, confusion, defilement, kalesa, whatever word you want to use, that keeps the other two going. Because who wants the pleasant, right? Who likes the pleasant? Who wants to be happy? Who is recoiling from the unpleasant? It's all about me. 
if there was no reference back to me, pleasant, unpleasant, comes, it goes. Well, it does anyway. But pleasant and unpleasant would come and go without it being a problem. The sense that, as I don't know if James put it in these words, but something like that, that you know, we get into, the habit is leaning into the pleasant, wanting more of it, the deep uh, view in terms of view, which is this isn't wise view, but the view that we so often hold of life is that pleasant equals right, good, happy. Unpleasant equals wrong, mistaken, unhappy, suffering. And even though, you know, I talk about this till I'm blue in the face, my mind gets into that habit still a lot. I'll be, you know, suffering or feel suffering in terms of feeling like I'm in, in contention with something that's going on. I can just feel that sense of struggle. So it can be subtle. I don't even know what. But as soon as I feel it, I just stop. Just stop a minute. I don't have to be on retreat. It could be anywhere. But just stop a minute, not trying to figure it out, but just kind of check what's going on in the mind. And almost always, I just see something the mind is pushing away. It's almost always a little on the unpleasant side. There's almost always some sense of, it would be better, or it would be right, or I would be happy if this was gone and this was here, or if this didn't go away and this never came, you know? It can be really gross. Like James was saying, you know, we get into just piling up. Whoever gets the most pleasant things strung so closely together that there's no gaps wins. We laugh. We know that's ridiculous, right? Right? <laughs> on, some level, <laughs> on some level, you know? We all know things are impermanent. We see the fleetingness of Vedana. How long does that pleasant feeling last? Like that. Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was a wonderful Thai um, forest meditation master, she both Guy and I were at his, um, his monastery, Shun Mok, when he was there. He would talk about the fleetingness of pleasant feeling. So just notice, if you really just start noticing pleasant and unpleasant, just the feeling tone. How long does it last in a moment? How long? Put that pleasant-tasting food on your tongue, and if you really just with it, the pleasantness, for me, it lasts about a tenth of a second. There's a burst, and then I'm just masticating, you know, kind of tasteless food, and the mind is reaching for the next pleasant, right? Why do we overeat? More and more and more and more, whatever it is that we do. The pleasant, the pleasant, the pleasant. How long does it last? Not much. And he says, but then, just look at all that, this is Buddha Dasa again, look at all the decisions you've made in your life. See, how many of them, of your decisions, your major decisions, were based on going for pleasant feeling? You know, if I do this, then I'll be happy. But you can't stop at happy. What does that mean? I'll feel good. Things will be nice. Somehow, we'll get all the furniture arranged on the Titanic just perfectly so that we're happy. And we can spend our whole life doing that. So this is really, really deep habits. It's really quick. And sometimes, yeah, pleasant is pleasant. There is gratification in the pleasant. Sometimes when people get confused because they say the Buddha says even pleasant feeling is dukkha, the first noble truth. So how can pleasant be dukkha? Pleasant is pleasant. I like it. I'm happy. I do feel good. You know, I like it better when I don't hurt than when my knee's killing me. I like it better when the food tastes good than when there's something I really am allergic to. You know, so how can you tell me that's dukkha? But dukkha means unreliable, can't be counted on for any kind of lasting satisfaction or happiness. So there is gratification in the pleasant, and that's often how we get seduced, because the other aspect of the view, I mean, again, I'm really simplifying, look in your own experience of what the views of what brings happiness, what brings suffering in your own life, not just the conscious ideas, but the ones you really act on, the ones you really take refuge in, in times of stress, when things aren't going the way you want. So, for instance, the idea everything comes and goes, it's impermanent. Knowing this, you know, is the way to peace. Okay, that's a nice thought. Is that where you really take refuge? Absolutely the knowing when something difficult is happening. 
And we can't kid ourselves. We might try, and that wisdom, that concept, wisdom on the intellectual level can be helpful. If something's difficult and we think, oh yeah, it does change, things do change, everything's impermanent, that might give the wisdom to just relax into what's happening. So that's true. That is, in a little way, taking refuge in it. Really taking refuge in it is absolutely knowing it's impermanent. We just open, it comes, it goes. But then notice, like I say, the times that it slips in underneath. I think I'm just being with what is, but ever so, ever so slightly, or not so slightly, I'm leaning towards, it just has to be, feel good. It just goes down, it's so embarrassing, really. You just want to feel good, for God's sake, you know? It's just so simple. I don't want my back to hurt. You know, I want to be able to feel good about myself, so I want to have some really deep, concentrative, you know, unitive states, and it sounds like so that I can really know anatta, and I want to know anatta so I can feel good about myself, like I'm getting somewhere in my practice, <laughs> and then I don't have to struggle so much. I can relax, right? It slips in. It slips in. Where was I going with this? <laughs> Oh yeah, the third, the third aspect that I just wanted to mention of, you know, the, um, the views we may hold is again that third one, that sense of me, that sort of me as a separate agent, either being acted on by experience and circumstances and environment and others, or being the agent that's doing the acting. As in meditating, I'm doing the meditation. You know, I'm focusing on my breath. I'm just, I'm, in a conventional way, of course, this is true. I'm not saying, you know, we should lose the sense of who we are as compared to other people or what the effect is on the environment. But deeply held, it's such a strong assumption, felt experience, that it's on the level of not even knowing that it's possible that our perception might perceive things in another way. So often it can happen in meditation. It's not that there can be an experience that there just isn't that sense so much of me and other. And it doesn't have to be some huge blowout experience. Sometimes people are just focusing on the breath or just being with pain, and suddenly, boom, something opens up. And just in that moment, it could be vast, it could be focused, but there's just no sense of me and other. And very often in that moment, the next thing that comes is a really strong fear. You know, which then people come and say, I got afraid and I ruined the moment. You know, it's like, again, immediately we own it. But the fear is just that sense of, whoa, this doesn't fit, this doesn't fit the paradigm. I don't know where to put this. What, what, what? In the moment, it's actually not suffering, it's not scary, it's just kind of the next moment. But that's just a habit. This isn't me and other, safe, safe, protected. Our mind doesn't really like it when these deep views are challenged. So when you're feeling in some way uncomfortable in practice or in life, and not, not like, you know, killer uncomfortable, overwhelmed, you're going to go crazy, okay? But a little uncomfortable, a little fear. That's not a bad thing. Let's go, oh, this is interesting. Get kind of interested. What's going on here? Don't think about it too much, but get kind of interested. So... Right, so how this works, this is obvious, but I'll just bring it in in meditation terms. These habits are so deeply habituated, of course, that's what we bring to meditation, right? We do something in order to achieve a result. I mean, that makes sense. We don't do something for no reason. If we said, come here for a month and work really hard for absolutely nothing, nothing will change. You'll be just the same before as after. You won't really be the same because you're never the same. But really, it's not to get a single thing. And even if our mind might say, cool, really, deep down, you know, we wouldn't show up. Why do we come to the hall? There's times when you come just to be in the presence of the moment. And that's sublime. That's wonderful. That sense of nothing to do, nothing to have, nothing to be. We love those moments. And then we turn it into, right? I'm just saying we, conventionally, into something to try and have again the next time, the next time, the next time. Because that's what our mind trusts. That was right. That was good. That felt pleasant. 
that now I got it about how to meditate and no self, how can I keep it? You see how they come in again, it just comes in again, the wanting of pleasant, the fearing of unpleasant, it's all about me. And the all about me also tends to mean I then have to do it. I have to figure it out. I have to do the meditation correctly in order to or purify my mind. Even that language, purify my mind. How many of you, either consciously or not, felt this, oh, my mind is impure? I, you know, how, how many of us start to kind of own, oh, corruption in my mind? Ugh, you know, or yeah, of course my mind is corrupt. It's infinitely corrupt. There's no way this mind could ever be purified. Instead of seeing none of it's personal. These habits, the, the greed, the dosa, the confusion, the me, 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 and I am, it's just the nature of mind. When pleasant comes, the unaware mind just leans towards it. It's just nature manifesting. It's normal. It's natural. It's not the only way, though. Actually, the mind in a moment that's just open, <coughs> relaxed, accepting, willing to just be without knowing, without having to make a story, without needing to judge or recoil, that also is really natural. But mostly in our daily lives, in our busy lives, that's not the quality of pure mind that we notice so much. It's not the one that we've, like when Sumedha was saying, it's the opposite of everything we've been taught. I don't know, how many of you were taught to notice that in school? How many of you were taught in the moment when you're just sitting, oh, that's great. You're just sitting there really present and aware without trying to impress, without trying to get it right. Just being awake. Wonderful. I mean, how many of us was that ever even pointed out as a possibility? Much more in our culture, we need to do, we need to achieve, we need to have some kind of a result in order to confirm ourselves or to have other people confirm us, to have a sense of doing okay, of existing. So, taking a simple, like just a simple meditation experience, how it moves so quickly. So say you're just sitting and you have a pain. Okay, that's no big deal. Pain in your butt, pain in your knee, it doesn't really matter where. And in just in the normal course of things, the pain comes up, it might be recognized, and there's just that little pulling back right away. Our tendency is, even in meditation, to keep on focusing on the pain and not to so much notice not so quite tuned in to just that quality of the knowing. So see when just that, oh, it's pain is like this, turns to uh, recoil. So we don't quite notice that. The pain gets more tight, and immediately what we perceive, we think about. Oh, this cushion is so hard. Why didn't I bring that soft foam cushion? I can't believe I forgot that air pillow that I always use. How am I going to bear another three and a half weeks of this? And besides that, that person next to me is making so much noise moving. How can I possibly come to any kind of a peace? And then you start self-chastising and wanting and the whole thing, right? Just in that amount of time. And at that point, which has taken no time, how can you even know what's actually happening? In that moment, that pain has obviously become a block to peace a block to meditation, a block to ease. It's not really questioned, it's just obvious. Maybe you've heard this from Sokni Rinpoche. This is our process of reaction and thought. We get into so much confusion by letting ourselves get lost in whatever happens. You project a thought, oh, this pain is unbearable. Then the second thought believes the first, how will I ever last two and a half months? Then the third, fourth, and fifth thoughts are projected. The first thought is by this time already a reality. This pain is unbearable. By the time the tenth one comes, it believes the fifth thought has always been an actuality. Right? And we just wonder why we don't actually recognize the true nature of peace, the true nature of the heart-mind of non-clinging. Why don't we even recognize how available how accessible it is, because we're all caught up 
in our stories, our projections of mind. It just happens so, so quickly. Tejaniya again, talking about how this works. He said, when we look with pain, of course, when we look at pain, it's natural that this light comes up in the mind. That's just kind of a natural expression. But when there's aversion in the mind and we don't really see it, how can you understand what's happening? For instance, he uses this example all the time. If you're angry at someone and you keep on looking at that person, what happens to the anger? Does it stay the same? Does it get worse? Does it get better? Does that person suddenly transform to incredible beauty? Like, no, they know when you're annoyed at someone and you keep looking at them, it just feeds the whole thing, right? The annoyance gets stronger. And that's what, that's what happens when we keep, when we're with pain or with anything else and we don't notice the aversion in the mind, you know? We can't recognize when the mind's reacting, you need to see that, otherwise we can't recognize accurately. The aversion colors our whole experience. So when we're talking about impure mind, so to speak, the mind colored by these uh, greed. Greed is like thirst. It's this I've got to have it kind of energy. It's not, it's not, there can be a wholesome wanting to do good. You know, we, wanting in English is used to cover a wide range of mental states that aren't the same. So the, the word in Pali, this is Lobaba, talking about greed, it's really referring to this kind of this thirst, this leaning forward, this I have to have it, with the promise that this is going to make me happy. It's a real deluded kind of a state. And so when we talk about it coloring the mind, let me try and explain. I'm going to try and explain without getting too, too, too technical. If I can find... Okay, yeah. Andy Olensky, who's the um, director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, and he's a Pali and Sanskrit scholar. So he, he, he loves to look at the quality of mind. Chitta is the word I'm using, translating as mind or heart. And he says, in Buddhism, the mind is not a subject. It's not like some thing, you know, that has objects as content. Not a thing has objects as content. But rather, the mind, the chitta, is the activity or the process of cognizing a flow of events. So you could think of chitta as a moment, and even that's a discrete moment is a way of talking, right? But it's just a moment of activity. Not like my friend in Burma was describing, she said, oh, I always thought of chitta as like this little round, there's this chitta, you know, moment of consciousness, moment of mind, and within it, you know, there's metta, or there's delusion, or there's wanting, or there's concentration, just a little, like little bubbles, you know, like cartoon bubbles over the head of somebody. But really, there's no, mind is something else. It's like a moment of consciousness with various mental qualities arising together with it. You know, and there's no kind of in or out of it. You know, there's no like here's the consciousness and then there's you over there that I'm cognizing. It's all arising together. Consciousness, that moment of chitta includes the the uh, vijnana, the, the consciousness, the sense object consciousness, so seeing or hearing. It includes whatever mental qualities are coming along with it, attention, mindfulness, metta, greed, hatred, confusion, whatever. Wholesome, unwholesome, a mix. So if in Utejaniya's example, there's a moment of uh, consciousness arising and the pain, what the, the object that's being cognized is painful sensation, unpleasant, strong, unpleasant sensation, and, it, and immediately with that, there's a kind of a flinching back, the aversion, and it's not recognized. It's like the aversion just colors. It's like a, a dye. It flavors that whole moment of consciousness. So it's as if from within it, the aversion is coloring how we think about, the conclusions we draw, how we relate to that experience. Of course I hate this pain, you know. I have to do something about it. My leg, my knee's going to break. I need to go to the hospital. Of course, that's normal. When I was just in, in a, on a retreat, sort of a light retreat, I had the same experience with, with craving. I was just doing some walking, 
and some craving came up for something. I don't know what. It was just this, I don't even know what it was for. But it was this sense of wanting this object. But I really then, the next consciousness, really noticed the craving with interest, not with aversion. And really was seeing how from within the craving, why it's so seductive, because the craving itself, the quality that it lends to the moment of mind, of heart, is this kind of seductive promise that, oh, this is really going to make you happy. You know, this is really, just feels like, just slide into this and it's all going to be okay. You know, and it colors everything. So from within it, even if the mind could say, well, I know this, I don't even know what it was, maybe it was a hot shower, isn't going to make me happy forever. It's coming in little little voice up here. You know, that's really not going to do it. But the craving <laughs> in the moment is just so, that's its nature to promise. Like what well, Yogi said to me in the three-month course, she was saying, oh, it's this, it's this empty promise, but we keep on getting believing it. The empty promise. And so sometimes, even when we start to see that getting this object or getting this experience isn't going to do it. And we think we're renouncing, but we just renounce the one object for another. We don't see that it's really the belief in the promise of the craving that needs to be seen through. It's not even that we have to stop it, craving, because that's aversion. Meeting craving with aversion isn't really any better, you know? But to just really feel the seduction and just be watching it, just watch it, yeah, if I get this, and just feel the whole thing, and then watch it fade away. And then keep on watching and notice, oh, this is a moment of clear, pure mind-heart. This is a moment of non-clinging. This is just the little bitty taste of the peace of the Buddha. It's really what the promise of clinging is, is when we get the thing, The clinging stops, and we're at peace. As long as we're focused outward on experience, on objects, on getting, and we forget to turn around and notice what's going on in the mind, then we're just going to stay in this endless circle of samsara, of getting and wanting and trying and doing and turning around. Oh, craving is like this nothing to do about it. It's so much more simple in a way. Oh, craving is like this. You don't have to hate yourself for craving. And certainly don't expect it to stop. And that means you're an arhan if it stops. So cut yourself some slack. But be willing to, oh, craving is like this. Dosa, that's my favorite, is like this. This is really, really important for me is like this. Then it may not be any of those. It may just be hearing, seeing, smelling, pain, quietness in the breath, jaggedness in the breath. What should I do? How should I meditate? Oh, worry. It's like this. That's the Ajahn Sumedho's language. That the real work of meditation is not so much about getting any technique perfect acquiring an experience and holding to it. But all the techniques are just to help us turn around and notice what's going on in the mind. And in that noticing, the steadiness, the steadiness, the steadiness of noticing, and this continuity, of course we space out, but the intention to be steady. I can't say enough how key that is. Because in the long steadiness of mindful awareness, Wisdom arises naturally. Like that example I gave of seeing the craving. That's just a little piece of panya. Wisdom arises. Oh, craving, I need this. No, oh, wow, look at the nature of craving. It's like this. It's an empty promise. doesn't seduce when you see that. And there's a moment of purity, a moment of peace. That didn't come because I decided I had to cultivate a moment of wisdom and get to peace. It came because there was, oh, Craving is like this. Oh, wanting is like this. Oh, oh, peace is like this. Thich Nhat Hanh has a great line. He says, understanding, panya, wisdom, does not arise as the result of thinking. 
is the result of the long process of conscious awareness. There's a long, steady, ongoing process of conscious awareness. Sometimes understanding can be translated into thoughts. So we have an insight and think about it a little bit. But often thoughts are too rigid and limited to carry much understanding. But the main point I wanted there is that, that understanding arises as the result of just the long, steady process of conscious awareness. And conscious awareness doesn't care what the object of awareness is. That can be so incredibly freeing because it really means we don't have to be so worried or controlling about what it is that's arising in our experience, how focused I am, or whether I'm experiencing bliss or pain, or whether I'm thinking, or whether the quality of my fantasies is, you know, really disgusting, or whether I'm, you know, still, still sleepy. Awareness doesn't care. The long process of conscious awareness, sitting, walking, eating, of course you space out, I'm not saying that. But the willingness to, um, as it were, not be so entranced by the objects, by what's happening, by our reactions to them, and just get more interested in the mind that's observing. This is from Wang Po, who was a Chinese then, Chan master. This pure mind shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. But most people are not aware of this. They think the mind is just the faculty that sees, hears, feels, and knows. So blinded by their own sight, by their hearing, by their feeling and knowing, people don't perceive the radiance of the source. As Sotani Rinpoche says, most of our life, our attention is turned out, out, out to other people, to experiences, or even when we're here in meditation, it's out in a way to how is the breath, how's the sensation, what's happening in the experience, how can it be better? Turn around and notice the mind that's noticing. And in that, the natural state is actually non-clinging, is actually peace. Just important for us to be willing to recognize that. Honor, honor is a little too fancy of a word, but just to acknowledge those moments when there's wakefulness, sense of presence, and no big pushing, pulling, needing going on. It could feel sublime, it could feel just kind of neutral, it could be peaceful, it could be alert, it could last for a while, it could just be for a second. It doesn't matter. As Ajahn Buddhadasa says, he says, generate, he calls this voidness, voidness of sense of self, right? He says, generate a contentment with voidness. Just notice it. Because when we bring to our techniques of meditation, whatever technique we do, when we do it with what Tejaniya calls right attitude, which is a mind that is just willing to be with what's happening, with the intention to understand rather than to judge, or to use the Sameda language, oh, frustration is like this. Hating my practice is like this. Aversion to the sound of that person stomping up the stairs and hating their guts and writing a letter to the man, it's like this. <laughs> you know? There's nothing that awareness can't notice. And when you say, oh, no, I can't figure out what's going on in that confusion, it's like this. This is kind of like you just step back and go, to me, actually, I quit trying to name it so precisely when I realize I'm all caught up trying to figure it out. I just get big, oh, dosa, wanting. And that's plenty, because it's moved the entrancement from involvement with the object to, oh, what's going on in the mind that's aware? And so our meditation is really, all our techniques are really about helping us tune in more to both the mind that's confused and suffering and the moments of mind that's pure, that's peaceful, that's not clinging. That's the kind of access to freedom and to recognize and trust that potential. It's not always having to be some incredibly deeply concentrated state. It doesn't have to come from some incredibly breaking you open anatta experience. 
again to Buddhadasa, we all experience many, many moments of this voidness every day. Every day. Just notice. And then notice the next moment. Aha! 232 moments of voidness. Okay, that's a moment of being. Okay. Another moment of being. 7,256,000 moments of being. But it's not, luckily, about numbers. <laughs> luckily, one of my teachers years ago said, a spark of truth burns up a mountain of lies. <laughs> and it's true. That's why just a moment inside is just a shift of perception of stepping out of that kind of limited view, out of the assumptions we don't know we have, and just seeing in a different way. And that has a lot more power than the amount of time that the mind spends in that perception. It just breaks something open. And many people have said, have talked about insights they have, some sense of real anatta or some sense of real knowing and permanence. And they say, well, it's not here right now. But there's a way I can access the memory that isn't just intellectual. It's really like we can kind of re-remember uh, kind of viscerally, cellularly. Oh, yeah. You know? And that's a useful thing, because we spend plenty of time re-remembering the other way. So it's really, that's actually really very helpful. So our practice, we use the techniques. We need to focus sometimes, because we, how to watch the mind, how to even know we have a mind. You're talking about noticing pleasant and wanting, how to even know, you know that I'm here in this room, never mind these subtleties we talk about seeing. So sure, sometimes we need technique. We need to be with the breath, or the body, or hearing to bring in some focus, to bring in some stability. We might deliberately talk about opening and being with changing objects. You know, we use technique, but not to perfect technique and not to achieve experience. Technique is just a way to, oh, what's going on in the mind? It's like we get more interested, almost like we fall in love with awareness rather than being so in love with experience. In fact, love and devotion is sometimes a wonderful way in to this opening. We'll talk more about that another time. But learning to trust it is really huge, really huge. And this is what we call cultivation of mind. So purify the mind. That doesn't mean get out the pickaxe and start, you know, digging away at the aversion and the clinging and start judging yourself. It's not personal. None of it's personal. We're just watching how nature manifests. When this happens and there's no mindfulness, when the mind isn't wanting, this is where it goes, into clinging. But when oh, clinging is like this, that awareness is always available. It isn't dependent on deep shamatha or samadhi. It isn't dependent really on anything except remembering. Remember, and the, that's why the continuity is so helpful. First, we just can remember, oh yeah, oh yeah, and then it starts to take on a momentum of its own. So, just a couple of, um, I just want to say a couple of things, a couple of hints in practicing in this way to make it seem not so esoteric, hopefully. So, the way Utejaniya talks about being aware of awareness, often that can sound like something really esoteric, you know, and we're looking for awareness to be aware of, and it can, you know, really get very frustrating and also a kind of infinite regression. So I just want to share the way he talks about it, which is incredibly simple. Someone's saying to him, you know, I don't know how to be aware of awareness. I don't know where to put my attention. He says, the mind cannot be found anywhere. Trying to find it is a futile exercise. It's like trying to find your glasses when you're actually wearing them. The mind isn't something you can take a hold of and look at, you know. So, you're getting confused because you're looking for something other than what is there. Sort of like my friend looking for the mind, the chitta, some kind of like thing, you know, bubble you can get a hold of. So, this is his example for awareness of awareness. He says to this person, just put your hands together like this. So try it, if you can bear it. Just put your hands together like that. Okay, can you feel the sensations where they touch? Yeah, right. First, how much effort does that take? Huh? Not a lot, huh? Just, just feeling the sensations, okay. Now, do you recognize that you're feeling the sensations? 
don't double think it. Just you recognize you're feeling the sensation. <laughs> Stay simple for the love of God, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's awareness of awareness. How hard is that? You're aware of, you know, aware of the sensation and you know it. That's awareness of awareness, not looking for a thing. Just awareness of awareness, very simple. So he says, don't try hard to look for awareness. You relax and see that it's already there. You know, we find being aware of the mind difficult only because we lack practice. So that's what he's talking about, being aware of the mind. It's not that hard, right? So when we're being with the breath, you're being with the sound, with whatever, there's hearing. When you know that you're hearing, that's awareness of the awareness of hearing. The next piece is that just becomes more natural. That, that quality of effort that was there when I said, you know, do you feel the sensations and know it? Not. It doesn't have to be a really precise, driven focus. Just a relaxed recognition. That's the quality that he talks about keeping going. Now, the other important piece, though, of this is 24-7, not just once in a while. Once in a while, as we always say with the continuity, you know, you don't, when it gets difficult or we space out, you don't see change. You don't, the, the steadiness is what allows for reality, for nature to reveal itself, for wisdom to arise. So in the in-between times, in the walking, in the sitting, in the eating, in the yogi meditation, in the work jobs, whatever, sometimes the mind might be more focused and really precise. Other times not. It doesn't matter. The key is just this remembering, remembering yourself. So, you know, you're trying to be mindful and feel and do the pots, and you're getting all lost, and the mind's irritated. Oh, irritation. That's it. You don't have to go in there and pick it apart and see the, you know, the, the pleasant and the unpleasant. And then in a sitting, in a quiet time, yeah, that might reveal itself. Other times, it's much more general. But it's not the object that matters. It's that knowing. Just that awareness of knowing. And as we go on with that, it gets a little bit of a momentum itself, and then when there's aversion in the knowing or wanting in the knowing, it actually becomes more and more obvious. Oh, so then it moves from knowing the sensations to knowing wanting. Fine, fine, fine. And in this way, it's the same as with Sameda. It's always just like this. It's not about trying to make it different. It's not about meditation as a way to confirm myself, as a way to you know, make myself feel better, as a way to get somewhere. It's just this sense of shifting the paradigm, stepping out of the habit of experience and liking and disliking and having experience make me happy and confirm me and getting somewhere and putting in effort to achieve a certain result and me doing the doing, to just Recognizing nature's happening all the time, awareness is happening, noticing it. It really gets to where, oh, aversion in the mind? I really feel happy to notice that, which is just a sense of ease of just noticing whatever it is that's happening. Life stops in these moments. I'm not saying it's steady state, okay? But notice, just like Buddha Dasa says, generate a contentment. He says with voidness, I'm saying with awareness, awareness that's with right attitude, awareness that's just this being with what is, not driven by wanting, by striving, by aversion. Generating a contentment with that, almost a love of it. And then whatever is happening, whatever is happening, is our practice, is our door to awakening, is a door to non-clinging, the heart of peace. Whatever is happening. There's no way your practice can't be good enough. Because it just doesn't matter. Awareness can meet all of it. Another quotation from Sameda. I think I just wanted to end with. When something arises in consciousness, it's seen with awareness, it's like this, that breaks the habit of self-referencing, of judging, of clinging. So any experience can introduce us once again to awareness. It's always available. That's the miracle of mindfulness, Thich Nhat Hanh says. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. <laughs> 